The views and opinions expressed on the podcasting couch are solely those of the contributors and do not reflect those of our other guests, sponsors, or distributors. Appearances on this podcast should not be viewed as an endorsement of any other guest, past or future. Coming to you via the magic of the internet, it is episode 41 of The Podcasting Couch, a podcast in which I, your host, Chris Carlson, sit down with content creators and discuss their lives, inspirations, methodology, and anything else that may come up during the conversation. My guest this week is Joshua Shea, author of The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, a book recounting the author's life and longtime struggles with pornography and alcohol. The book tells of his spiral into an eventual arrest on a charge of underage pornography possession in 2014. Bothered at the lack of quality resources and open discussion around the topic of pornography addiction, Shea is now sharing with the public his experiences with the addiction in the hopes he can help people to not head down the same road that he did. Shea recounts the last several years of his life leading up to his legal trouble and how his poor judgment and bad decision-making led to a life he never thought was possible. This week, we discussed coping with addiction, finding a publisher for a taboo topic, and navigating the world after being arrested. Music this week is provided by Message from Sylvia. The song is called Never Wanna See You Again. In order to progress in life and music, change is inevitable. The inexorable forces of change are what brought the members of Message from Sylvia together. With former bandmates leaving to start families or moving on to other projects, change happened with a simple phone call and fate began to run its course in the summer of 2016. That phone call, facilitated by Nashville-based artist manager Eric Baker, connected the Lopez Smith brothers Dane, Isaac, and Zachary, formerly of First Decree, with vocalist Matthew Nevitt from Echo Valve and Dory Drive. Though they hail from disparate backgrounds, the members of Message from Sylvia found an immediate chemistry working together. That chemistry is already producing a combustible mix of explosive energy with the heavy yet melodic first single, Heart of War, which broke into the top 30 at Active Rock Radio. Their second single, Right Here and Now, an upcoming album, were produced by, and you'll have to excuse me, I'm going to mess up this name, Sahaj Tikotin, right here and now, is quickly climbing the charts at Active Rock Radio nationwide. Frontman Nevitt says, quote, We are truly humbled to have worked with someone like Sahaj. I really feel he bled into this song and our new album just as much as any one of us. We're going to listen to Never Want to See You Again and then jump right into my conversation with Joshua Shea. This is the Podcasting Couch. We'll be right back.
overarching uh, theme uh, uh, or the overarching what we're here to talk about in the first place, which is um, your book that you had written. So um, I, I guess if, if you want to kind of give like a, a little synopsis about um, what the book is um, and then okay. we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Um, the book itself is called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. I uh, wrote this uh, for two real reasons. One is to hopefully create something that the average person, the non-addict, the person who doesn't have uh, mental health issues, but wants a real easy entry into the uh, world or idea of pornography addiction, create something for them to show them that porn addicts aren't these... 20-year-old, you know, pimple-faced kids living in their mom's basement who have never kissed a girl in real life. Porn addicts can be anybody. I was a uh, magazine publisher. I was a film festival producer. I was a city councilor. Most people probably thought I was the last person they'd think could have a porn addiction, and I hit it for, you know, 20, 25 years. The other reason for writing this book is for those people who may be in the early stages of porn addiction, or maybe wondering if they have it, if they don't, if they're even the kind of person who could have it. Uh, hopefully they could see this book as a mirror, but also see it as a warning sign, because my addiction grew to a very critical place that uh, eventually brought me to jail and sent me to a couple of different rehabs um, and, and took a whole bunch of my life away. And I don't want that to continue to happen to people, and I don't want victims to continue to pile up. So with the statistics the way that they are uh, in the world uh, regarding porn addiction, I thought that... Uh, you know, I could be a voice, granted an imperfect voice, but I could be a voice to uh, hopefully bring some uh, attention to this uh, issue that's that's going to be plaguing us in the very near future. Right. So, so let's um, let's. You'd mentioned that uh, your addiction had had reached a critical mass to the point where it ended you up in uh, in prison. So, uh, uh, let's um, let's kind of shift over to that real quick. I want to kind of get that out of the way um, and, sure. and talk about what happened there, um, and and then uh, move on from that. Sure. Well, I will just just to clarify, I will say I never actually went to prison. Oh. In Maine, you have to have a sentence of more than nine months to go to prison. I was sent to county jail where I ended up serving uh, just a couple days over six months. Okay. Um, ultimately, though, uh, what sent me there was that my life had reached such a critical point, and it wasn't just my pornography addiction. I also um, was a pretty hardcore alcoholic. Uh, my relationships with family and friends were crumbling. My professional life was crumbling as my businesses were failing. And probably the biggest uh, factor in this perfect storm was that I had stopped taking my psych meds for bipolar disorder. Um, so there, there was there was a big stew of things happening at one time. Um, 
And I let myself sink to the point where my pornography addiction began to fall under the age of 18 years old. Um, I started to see no difference between an older girl and a younger woman. I didn't even care at the time. I was unable to think about consequences. And I began to speak to uh, women in chat rooms and eventually ended up talking to one who was under 18 years old. Um, when the police busted me, I found out a little bit later she was actually 14 years old, which blew my mind that I was able to sink to a place where that was even possible for, for me to do. Um, it, it, it still blows my mind that I allowed myself to get that ill and to do that kind of thing. So I wanted to write a book about it, not hide from it, because of how well known I was in my in my community. Um, this was front page news on the newspaper. This wasn't news uh, on TV for several days after I was arrested. And while I really resented the fact that I thought I was being treated uh, a lot worse than than the average person who gets picked up for underage pornography. I now can realize four years later that that probably was a blessing that, you know, since all of my skeletons were all over the newspaper and I have nothing to hide, I still have a lot of shame. I still have a lot of embarrassment, but I can take my message of porn addiction awareness and bring it to the public because all of my skeletons are out there. And and so um, there was something that I kind of wanted to uh, 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 talk about. I um, like I mentioned in our correspondence beforehand, uh, you'd sent me over a copy of the book, and I got a chance to read it. And um, there was something that kind of uh, I, I thought was a little interesting that I wanted to ask you about, um, as far as um, the, uh, the 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 chat boards or uh, I guess. Uh, webcam chat i don't know what you what you'd call them uh, i can't think of a good word for them right now but um the uh the, the the chat rooms the online chat rooms where you had mentioned that you started to get to a point where what you wanted to do was convince women who were not comfortable taking their clothes off to do just that and i, I i'm curious if um because that, that struck me as and this is obviously just playing like armchair psychologist here um obviously no kind of training in the field or anything like that um but it kind of seemed like that it, it, it did that like start when the magazine really started uh failing and falling behind it, it felt like kind of like it was like some kind of like a a way to get a little bit more control over things yeah it i, I i've always been someone who had major control issues um i you know i was somebody who created businesses so i could make the rules um i have been diagnosed as likely having a narcissist disorder um as well so um there, there's a lot of control issues i have and when it got to the point that i was actually uh talking in any chat rooms or anything it was absolutely about power um, it, it, it was far less about any kind of uh, pornography or sexuality. It was about being able to force somebody to my will. And that's why I ran companies. That's why I ran for city council. I wanted to control situations. I don't feel safe in situations unless I am controlling them. And while I couldn't control the implosion of my business, while I couldn't control the implosion of my mind, I, I felt like I was, uh, I was 
losing all control in my life. The one thing that I was having some success with was convincing women online uh, and to take off their clothes or uh, to even just do other strange things. Um, you know, there was, uh, I, I don't talk about this a lot in the book, but you know, I, I would have people move the furniture around in their room just to make them do something. Um, and it was absolutely about control. You know, if I wanted uh, porn, I knew where to find it. Um, I uh, This was about creating a trophy, and that's where I ultimately got in trouble, was that I would create screen captures at the end of my interactions with these women and didn't use them for any gratification purposes, just kept them as trophies to show that, hey, you really can still do something with your life. You still can convince people to bend to your will. And ultimately, that's what got me in trouble was that uh, I took these screen captures, you know, specifically of the of the underaged girl. Um, and, and, you know, it, it as hard as it is for some people to believe, it really, that part of it really wasn't about gratification of a sexual nature. That part was all about control. Yeah, I, I I get that, and that is um that is what it what it how it struck me as well. Um, reading through the book, um, that was kind of the sense that I got from it. Um, was that it was about control. Um, and, and so I'm kind of curious. Uh, in in having been caught and then sentenced, uh, sent to jail, sent to rehab. Uh, what what's your experience been as far as um coping with things like that um that that need to control um and, and, and then i kind of want to move from there over to um a little bit more about the um the the addiction as far as coping with that as well well it's it's kind of amazing when you uh not only address your addictions because addictions are usually just symptoms of larger problems uh, addictions themselves are coping mechanisms and uh, shortly after I was arrested, I first went to rehab for alcoholism. I thought I'd go off for four weeks, the 28 days like you see on TV. Um, ultimately, I was at a facility in Palm Springs for 70 days. Um, I spent 10 weeks dealing with not just my alcoholism, but what was making me drink. I knew from a very young age I wasn't drinking for the same reasons my friends were around me. What was I trying to hide? What was I trying to cope with? Um, those were the things that I needed to deal with. Same when I went off to uh, uh, rehab for pornography addiction uh, about a year later was... I need to figure out, you know, how did I create my coping mechanisms as a young person? How did I create my survival skills? How did I see myself? How did I see other people around me? Uh, what were my motivations? What did I think other people's motivations were? And it's amazing when you take control of these issues how you really don't need to take control of other things. You know, I was the guy who would always be on your Facebook feed telling you what to think about politics or what to think about sports or, or whatnot. And I don't even have social media these days. Um, my lack of control 
was really the driving thing in my life that I felt I had no control in my life. And I don't feel that anymore. I'm happier, healthier, uh, physically, mentally, and spiritually than I have been in my entire life. And I, I barely watch the news. I don't do social media. Um, when you can control what's happening in your own life and be at peace with it, uh, at least for me, I don't need to, I don't need to worry about those other things at this point. So let's um, let's talk about that. Uh, the you said the the reason that you had written the book was to drive people towards the website that you have, which is geared at at helping people. Um, and I guess you can probably put this better than me as far as what the what the goal of the website is. Um, yeah, well, it's and- it's uh, recoveringpornaddict.com um, for anybody who wants to check it out. Um, and that is much more of a uh, self-help or resource-based site uh, than the book is. The book is designed to basically just tell you my story. You're not going to find a lot of statistics in the book. You're not going to uh, develop, you know, uh, methodology to take care of a porn addiction. You're just really going to learn my story and the story of a guy who you may not think had porn addiction. At recoveringpornaddict.com, I do share things like what are the signs of pornography addiction. You know, I share statistics um, to try to, you know, spread awareness about, you know, what, what a real problem this is. Also provide other uh, resources like a, a list of uh, rehabs that people can go to, some self-assessments people can take, uh, other places people can go learn about it beyond my website. Um, I want to be able to have a place where after somebody takes a look at the book, they can go and, and learn more if they choose to. And I do, you know, have entries in there uh, where I do also continue to talk about my recovery while the end of the book does finish up uh, with me going to jail. Um, there's been a couple years since then, and uh, this is almost a continuation of that story. Uh, when I do some uh, memoir-based articles on there. So I, I wanted to ask you about, and because this is something that I find really interesting, um, when, you know, I've, I've had um, alcoholics in my family, um, I, so I, I've kind of seen that cycle of things. Um, and I know with a lot of, it, it seems like with a lot of alcohol addiction, when you get sober it it's usually you're you're done um as far as not like necessarily with like you're you don't have the problem anymore but that you're done drinking period you don't do it anymore um and i'm curious if if recovering from from porn addiction is is kind of the same thing or or if uh it, it's a little cuz it it seems like to me i maybe I'm simplifying it, but the idea of how much more quickly accessible porn is as opposed to something like alcohol or drugs, which right. take a little bit more of an active need to well, go get and, it. And the, the goal of uh, recovery with alcohol or drugs is complete and total abstinence. 
that's not the necessarily the goal with uh, sex or porn addiction. The goal is a healthy sexuality. Uh, you're not supposed to just go and be 100% abstinent from anything to do with sexuality um, in recovery. You have to learn um, in Sex Addicts Anonymous, they talk about three circles. Um, your inner circle are those specific behaviors. You know, for me, pornography, other people, it's uh, exhibitionism or dangerous sex or whatnot. That's your inner circle behavior. That's really a problem. Your next outer circle is what are those things that lead to your problems you know for me it might be you know buy, buying a pornographic magazine or or going uh onto a pornographic website um you know that i i can't do that or that leads me to that inner circle and then the outer circle are the healthy things in your life everything else and you try to live your life in that outside circle um and in that outside circle is uh, healthy sexuality um, you, you know, you're not meant to be a non-sexual being. Uh, one of the groups of people who I connected with um, in my uh, rehab for, for sex and porn addiction was the people in the eating disorder program because you can't abstain from eating either. You need to figure out a healthy way to do it if you're somebody who's dealing with anorexia or bulimia. So, there was a lot of uh, intermingling, actually, between the eating disorder group and the sex and porn addict group because, you know, it wasn't about total abstinence for us. It's about figuring out how to have healthy behaviors in this certain area of our life that we just didn't in the past. That that makes that actually makes a lot of sense. I, um, you know, I think um, I think part of it is there's not a lot of public understanding of addiction. And I think there's even less public understanding of addiction recovery. Um, and, and I think it, it, it makes a lot of people unsure of what it means to be uh, a, a recovered addict of something. And especially of these things that are more, more necessary than say, like if you had like a, a an alcohol problem or a drug problem or something like that, um, and so I think that's a really interesting uh, way way to put it as far as that those kind of groups would would intermingle together because of the fact that it's not something that you can just put down and not worry about ever again. Right, and it's it's uh, you know one of the things with with addiction and people I think not understanding it is that there's still this belief that addiction is something uh, that is about weakness or it's about being a bad person or less of a person. Um, addiction is really a disease of the mind and yes it is a disease that the person can uh, start off uh, creating. Um, nobody wants to be an addict but you know there are there are reasons people become addicts and it does change the brain chemistry and you can you know say that somebody is weak because they're an addict but until you've walked in their shoes you really don't understand what a what a magnet this kind of thing is um, you know i i go to a casino and i spend twenty thirty dollars and i get out of there i hate losing money uh, 
but I can understand what the kind of thrill and pull the person who's at the roulette table betting $20,000 on, you know, the, the roll of a dice, what they're doing, you know, and why they're doing it. I can understand how somebody who, you know, eats four and five pieces of chocolate cake because it's their only uh, comfort in the world, why they get addicted to food. I'm, I'm not addicted to food by any means, but I do get it because addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. Um, the same thing is going on in the addict's head dealing with the dopamine and the oxytocin. Now, granted, something like drugs or alcohol, there are other physical side effects, um, but what's going on in the mind is essentially the same thing with all addictions. Yeah, I think anybody who has, like, I, I think one of the things that helps um, with my understanding of addiction in general is, um, like I said, there's that family history of it. Um, I, I've been around it. I've seen it. Um, maybe not at, like it's worse. I haven't seen like rock bottom, but seen some pretty uh, not great things as far as that goes. And then on top of that, um, I've also been addicted to uh I, I was a smoker for four years um and it took <laughs> it wasn't easy to quit um and uh some people would say using nicotine you still haven't but i disagree with that but that's on another it's <laughs> on another but, topic but, but you under you understand that feeling of i need to do this behavior even though i know this behavior is wrong and mm -hmm. even though I will feel horrible once this behavior is over, I still need to do this. But you tell yourself it'll be the last time. You tell yourself you won't do it again. And there you go again. And there you go again. And there you go again. Absolutely. And I've noticed with, um, like, for instance, with with uh, with smoking, one thing that, that, that I remember uh, is amongst my group of friends when we'd go out, for cig we'd go out to have cigarettes outside, um, we would talk about and joke about how terrible they were um, and kind of have that sort of uh, resigning to, yeah, that's just how it's going to be. Um, I know that this is bad for me. I know it's probably going to give me cancer, but hey, it feels good right now, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and and kind of just resigning to doing it. Um, and, and And that's because we think consequences happen to the other guy. You know, I, I lived my life of don't ask permission to do things. Just say sorry after you've done them if people aren't happy with it. Um, and that's, re that's really the way I looked at drinking or porn or doing anything in my life. I'll just go ahead and do what I want because rarely are there consequences. And if there are, I'll just say sorry. And that's why I think for somebody like me or... Uh, that you know, jail is was absolutely uh, a huge part of my recovery. I think that consequences are a giant part of recovery. You know, if, if you're a drunk driver, or if you you know commit a, a robbery or something, trying to get money for drugs or gambling, uh, I think you know that yes, you are sick, and that society should see you with the illness that you have. But I don't think that addiction is any excuse to get away with things that are illegal. Uh, I, I know in my case, having consequences, uh, that, that, was, that was just a 
biggest part of recovery as the all of the therapy and uh, all of the other work I've done. It's important for somebody like me to see that my actions do have consequences. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess the the question in in the mind would be why stop doing something if nothing bad is coming of it and it makes me feel good. So I, I, I guess that, that makes a lot of sense that in a, in a lot of cases, I'd imagine the consequences would be the catalyst towards recovery because without the consequences, well, why, why stop? I would have, I would have, I would have never gone to, uh, rehab for either alcohol or pornography if I had not been arrested. Uh, had I not actually been arrested, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, I only give even odds that I'd even be alive today. Uh, I was just, I was in such bad shape that something was going to give at some point. Thankfully, the police showed up at the door. That probably saved my life. Um, I needed somebody to step in and really uh, provide some consequences because the consequences also brought me into recovery. They, they, uh, I would have gone kicking and screaming to rehab and then ran away if, uh, if it wasn't something that was part of my legal situation. I saw people walk out of rehab every day. There were plenty of times I felt like walking out of rehab, but I know I couldn't because I couldn't go stand in front of a judge when my sentencing came and said, yeah, I went to rehab, but I left. That just is not somebody who's taking uh, control of their life. That's not somebody who is addressing their issues. So uh, having that legal situation hanging over my shoulder even before I went to jail was a big motivator in keeping me in rehab. And those kinds of consequences, I think, might even if we had more of them might lead to a healthier society. So you, you wrote the, my understanding is you wrote the first draft of the book while you were in jail. Um, and, uh, you'd mentioned that you found not many publishers were willing to pick up the book. Um, which I, I, can understand to a degree at the same time like like we'd mentioned before i am i am a big believer in the courts and in so much that i also believe that after someone has served their sentence that should be that's that um obviously it 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 sort of i uh, i can't think of had a word what what i'm trying to say uh that's in my head well it's from a business point of view i get it why go out on a limb and this is one of the things that I uh, that prompted me to write this book was that um, it was just originally going to be a you know long journal in jail. I really wasn't sure that there was enough there, or or there was anything you know deep inside of what I'd written that could that could be turned into a book. But when I got out of jail, I looked for a book that was not a dry text, that was not a preachy text, that was not even a here's how to fix it text. I found that when I was in rehab, 
the most powerful thing was hearing from people who were like me. It wasn't necessarily when I was in one of the therapy rooms or in one of the group sessions um, with a professional there. It was sitting at dinner or was sitting with somebody in the evening and just hearing our stories back and forth without the medical mumbo-jumbo, without the super deep uh, analyzation, and it, because it just lets you know that you're not alone. And that's one of the reasons for the book and one of the reasons for the kind of just everyday life story of me descending into addiction in the book is that I hope that some people will look at it and go, oh my, that's me, that's my story. Or, you know, that's my brother's story or that's my sister's story. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, sitting in jail, it was a cathartic thing to go through all of that time. Um, as I mentioned in the book, the I, I walked out of jail with 200,000 words. Um, this book is less than half of that. Um, it would be the addiction nobody will talk about and nobody wants to read this much about because um, <laughs> it was just it was just too much to it. Um, but it was cathartic to tell my story, and I know it's cathartic to hear other people's stories. So you know, when I was when I was sitting in jail, this I wrote this towards the end of my six months. Uh, I just I I need to get this experience out of my head onto paper and it wasn't until afterwards when I realized there is no porn addiction memoir that involves uh, treading into underage territory and what the consequences of that are out there and since I as I mentioned earlier uh, was well known and everything was kind of out in the open um, still embarrassing still a lot of shame but I can bring my story out and let people hear it. And I'll never know for sure, but maybe because of the addiction no one will talk about, maybe there will be a few less victims out there. Maybe there will be a few less people who get to the point that I did. And uh, that gives me a little bit of peace knowing that. I I can understand that. I think, um, you know, having you on here, um, like you had mentioned, the, the business standpoint of it being – uh, going out on a limb, I know that this show has uh, a modest but a few financial backers. Um, very, very modest. Uh, but um, I was uh, going in a little nervous. Um, well, I guarantee to... you, I guarantee you, somebody is going to tell you that simply because you're having this discussion with me, you were somehow supporting the behavior that I had. Um, there's somebody who is going to take a stand about this podcast that we're recording without ever listening to it. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do to change their mind. Listen to the story. Listen to what we talk about. We, you know, you and I are having a fine uh, adult discussion about this topic which needs to happen but there are a lot of people who just want to shut it down who will say that you know you're a bad person for letting me come on your show i'm a bad person for ever doing this once i did this everything that happens the rest of my life is tainted i'm a bad person no matter what happens moving forward and after a while uh I, somebody like me who wanted to make everybody happy who was a huge you know narcissist who needed a ton of attention um i just had to let that go um right at the very end of the book i mentioned that you can you can hate me and uh there's not much i'm going to be able to ever do about that but i am going to continue talking about this with anybody who will let me because this is a problem we need to talk about uh you know alcoholism 60 70 years ago 
was seen for the feeble-minded, and people were thrown into institutions when they were alcoholics. Um, you know, 25 years ago, uh, when people first just started talking about sex addiction, they were seen to all be, you know, crazy orgy freaks. Um, and why would you talk about that? Um, you know, if we would deal with some of these important issues in our society, you know, you can't tell me that sexual harassment in the workplace just started six months ago, but suddenly it's all anybody is talking about. You can't tell me that bullying started 10 years ago. Well, that was when everybody started talking about it. Look at our opioid crisis. You can go back to episodes of Dragnet from the 1960s where they're fighting heroin problems. You can go back 25 years and listen to Eminem talk about abusing Vicodin. It's not like we didn't know the opioid crisis was going to happen. And right now we are at the building of a wave when it comes to pornography addiction. The statistics keep growing and they keep getting scarier. And if people want to put their head in the sand, if they want to take a moral stand that having any discussion about pornography addiction, especially with someone like me who had it and it got criminal, if, if, if they see that as a bad thing, so be it. But that's not going to help the problem as we move forward. And that's why, you know, I applaud people like you who give me a platform for this. Um, I'm an imperfect messenger, but until the perfect Boy Scout comes along and starts telling people about this, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Right. And I think um, what, what, I, what I was uh, getting at is that with, I think, one of the, one of the good things about... Um, these kind of mediums um the 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 sort of the new media of the world that being you know the in, the independent podcasts the independent websites um the independent blogs and things like that is um you know this show for instance is listener funded completely um and so it it there is no brands necessarily i guess you could say that are at risk for putting money behind this show. It's, it's people who listen to the show. And I, you know, one of the big reasons why I, I agreed, um, is because this is a conversation that is, uh, both uncomfortable and I think necessary. Um, and I, because it is a listener funded show and because it is a show that doesn't have these huge names or huge brands behind it and things like that, it, it feels like it's a safe place to have this difficult conversation, this uncomfortable conversation. And I have faith that the people who contribute financially to the show, um, will see that as well and, and will support my decision to, to do this. Um, and so that was kind of the, the main driving force behind, um, agreeing to, to do it. Um, and so I think that that is kind of the the beauty of having this newly connected world is is that we're able to get voices out there that maybe aren't as uh, aren't, aren't as pretty uh, messages that aren't as pretty, you know, conversations that aren't necessarily always fun to have but our conversations that if we want to move forward, we need to have. Well, and those are the, those are the conversations that ultimately change the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in the status quo. There's a lot of money to be made in not questioning anything. Um, I certainly understand that. I 
created a magazine for years that uh, didn't cover politics, didn't ruffle feathers, didn't try to uh, um, really raise any big issues. Um, it was a puff piece, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is shows like yours. Um, it is the independent press, the independents um, in the publishing world who take these leaps, who who understand that, you know, right now, one out of three men between 18 and 30 say that they're probably addicted to pornography. Think about that. One out of three men under 30 are addicted to pornography. Those guys are going to be 40 years old, and then they're going to be 50, and then they're going to be 60. And if we don't start dealing with this, we're going to have a nation and a world of men whose sexuality is completely warped because of pornography. And if we wait 30, 40 years to talk about this, we've lost a generation or two. And who knows what effect that's going to have on, on people down the road. And there's one, there are two things I can be sure of. Number one, sex isn't going anywhere. And number two, the Internet isn't going anywhere. So we need to address um, some of these ills in the world, and that's uh, that's where you know somebody like you steps in. And thankfully, I was able to finally find a publisher who who had the courage to do this. Um, had I not, I would have self-published. And that's a great thing about our society today is that you know if you can get something on paper and you have access to Amazon, you can self-publish. Um, there are certain uh, stigma attached to that, and you don't get out to a, as much of a wide audience as you would with a real publisher, but there are some fantastic books out there that are self-published, and anybody who's listening to this who fashions themselves a writer or wants to say something out there, don't discount self-publishing if you can't find a publisher. I, I tried to get an agent for two months, couldn't do it. I tried to get a publisher for three months, couldn't do it. Finally got lucky. I was very close to throwing in the towel and going the self-publishing route. And I think that would have been okay. And I wouldn't have let that silence me. And nobody can let anything else uh, silence them out there. If the status quo says to be quiet, the status quo says we don't want to hear what you have to say, uh, you got to stand up and say, nope, I, I believe in what I'm saying and this message that pornography addiction needs to be addressed. I wouldn't be saying it had I not gone through the situation I went through. Um, now, now, now I'm going to be part of the solution. And, and again, I thank you for being part of it too. Yeah, and, and so I want to I want to talk to you about um, on that topic. You know, I think um, you'd mentioned the, the, the one in three statistic, and that's a big number, and it's quite frankly a believable number. I think um, you know one of the big things that I've talked about a lot, um, not always on this medium, but in my day to day life, is the uh, the idea of our, for instance, our our poor sex education uh in in school uh that that give kids a from a young age a not a good understanding of healthy sexual relationships um it, and even more i don't think i don't think that uh our school system equips parents to deal with kids there are plenty of parenting classes out there you know when you get into the high school level you learn about you know child care and you learn you learn how to deal with children and granted the world is changing fast um but sexuality is always going to be a thing and you can't blame the technology the technology makes it easier to get to 
but I am probably one of the you know generation of last pe- last people who didn't get hooked on pornography through the computer. Uh, you know, it was VHS videotapes and, and and magazines that introduced me to this world. Um, you can't blame the medium. You can't say you can't keep up with it if you're a parent. Uh, you know, sex education uh, should be better in schools. And it needs to be better at home, and there needs to be more resources for parents, because it isn't about specifically Instagram or Snapchat or uh, whatever the next, you know, website or connection is. Uh, It's not even about technology. It's about how you help your kids view sex, sexuality in their bodies. And that's, that's another discussion that we need to have more of in this country. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, when my daughter was born, my wife and I uh, had that started. I mean, it's still going because she's only two. So obviously we're not there yet. But um, we started having that conversation, you know, uh, with each other about how do we handle this? Because I know if things don't improve in the school systems, and obviously it's something that we talk with her about anyway, but if things don't improve in the school systems, it would be a a much more active role that we would have to take in explaining these things to her. I remember growing up, uh, sex ed was abstinence only. Um, right. You know, they, they taught that uh, having sex before marriage is bad and that's that. Um, you know, there was no talk of safe sex. There was no talk of um, healthy relationships. There was no talk of, uh, of healthy relationships with yourself even. Um, you know, it, it was all just... Uh, sex is bad. Uh, you have to wait until marriage. If you don't, you're going to get STDs, and that was it. Well, and I think that's and- the, I think that's the same thing with other addictions too. I mean, I remember hearing uh, you take one sip of alcohol and you're destined for a life of you know alcoholism. And I pictured that you know if I ever took a little sip of beer, I'd be laying in the gutter like uh, you know a, a villain in a Bugs Bunny cartoon with a bottle with two X's on it, and you know hiccuping these horrible bubbles. And then I had my first beer and it tasted great. And I wondered what else did people lie to me about? And I, you know, I experimented with drugs. I, you know, I, I, you know, went the porn route and 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 the sex addiction route. Um, bec- I think a big part of it had to do with my early years of feeling lied to about these substances that these are really bad for you. These are really horrible. Yet when I tried them, they actually felt pretty good. Um, you know, nobody told me they'd feel good at first. They definitely felt they felt bad after a while, but nobody told me they'd feel good at first. And I think if I would have had that warning, I, I perhaps uh, might have made different choices. Right, and I think that is um, I, I, I one of the things that I remember growing up was um, I grew up during the era of uh, the Dare campaign, mm-hmm. um, and so I remember growing up hearing you know. Uh, alcohol is bad for you, weed is bad for you, and lumping those things in with things like heroin and cocaine. And so I, I think, you know, it, it is, like you said, that that sort of if you demonize all things equal, the lesser things can give way to the things that can cause serious issues later on down the line as well. You know, you 
you, you smoke a joint and nothing really is going to happen to you. But if you got told your whole life that it's going to be the same as if you're shooting up heroin, all right. of a sudden you th- start thinking to yourself, well, maybe heroin's not that bad either. Well, and, that, <laughs> and that's why, you know, people say, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug and a lot of marijuana users laugh at it. But I guarantee you, I mean, having spent my time in rehab talking with uh, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people who were drug addicts when you factor in my time in jail um these people all started with marijuana these people all started drinking and they had they had addictions to both of those things and they escalated because that's what happens when you're addicted it escalates you know the dopamine receptors actually in in a it's a cruel you know irony in a desire to feel more dopamine when you go further into your addictions you actually destroy your receptors so it's a vicious circle as you're destroying your receptors you need more of the addiction or the substance or the behavior to feed it so the worse it gets the worse it gets and the worse it gets and you have to keep finding new highs and that's you know the heroin user does start with with marijuana or cigarettes or sneaking a beer and you know somebody like me who you know is a porn addict who goes to a critical point where it's uh, illegal content or not even illegal but bizarre content um you know i i talk to people in rehab who had fetishes that i could never understand um i mean really unique weird stuff that the average person would just you know laugh at or cringe at um but that's because their addiction grew to a point where the regular stuff wasn't doing it for them anymore yeah i think um that is ultimately um i think the 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 problem is likely more uh the the early part of things that is the education on these topics um because like you said i mean you know you can know plenty of people who uh, myself included can enjoy, you know, a beer every couple nights, uh, maybe have a couple and then just be fine, uh, and, and have nothing more. But if we're not teaching people how to recognize the signs of unhealthy uses of these vices, um, then it can, it can, uh, ex- accelerate, uh, or, or escalate rather to the point where it is something, uh, worse something more extreme or something just generally unhealthy um absolutely when it goes from recreational to almost medicinal um you should that should be a big red flag you know if, if you ever get to the point where you need that beer in the evening or you're covering up how much you're drinking um you know that that that's when you do get to that point and unfortunately um you know i didn't see that with my drinking or or my porn use i didn't know what the early warning signs were of any of this um it wasn't until i reached that critical mass and and started getting professional help that i looked back and i was like oh those early warning signs were there when i was 22 years old you know i I tell some stories in the book about my, my drinking where it's like why were these not red flags when they happened i mean i i got kicked out of the country of japan for drinking but it was another 15 years before i realized i was an alcoholic uh that's a that's a big big deal um 
but I never saw it there. So, yeah, again, it goes back to education. It goes back to awareness, uh, whether it's alcohol, drugs, porn, uh, any any type of uh, malady that you can, uh, you know, at first bring upon yourself. Because, yeah, I, I made the decision to take that first drink. I made the decision to look at those magazines. Um, but then I wanted it more and I wanted it more and I wanted it more. And it became something that was tough to face and i wish i understood uh that it was truly an addiction back before it reached such a a, a critical sign i i think um that right there uh is is a good place to start wrapping it up um we're already at over 45 minutes um it went by really quickly (laughs) um and and so i guess uh where i want to end it is um just kind of briefly uh, going over uh, sort of your message uh, that you have um, and, and then if somebody uh, feels like that message might pertain to them where they would go um, for the resources right. that you right. offer well like I said you know I, I I created this book as a memoir to show one white-collar successful guy his descent into porn addiction, because I don't think that's the picture you get when you look at porn addiction. Uh, for the non-porn addict, this is a really good way to see how it happens. For somebody who may be developing a porn addiction or maybe even fully into it, I hope this is a cautionary tale and has them pull back from where they are. Um, and they can then take the next step and visit my website, uh, which is recoveringpornaddict.com. That'll be a little bit more nuts and bolts. Um, still, you know, not preachy, not overly statistical, not dry, uh, but it's more nuts and bolts dealing with porn addiction specifically and uh, less of my personal story. Um, like and for anybody interested, you know, uh, the book is Amazon. Uh, we have it in Kindle and in soft cover. You can get it at BarnesandNoble.com if you just type in uh, the addiction nobody will talk about or my name Joshua Shea. You'll be able to get to my website or, or the book either way. Uh, but it's something that even if people just hear this show and uh, don't look any further into it, understand that you know pornography addiction is a real thing, and it's a thing that people hide because it involves sex and we don't talk about sex in the open enough it involves embarrassment it involves shame it involves those little secret things that uh, get you excited nobody wants to talk about their fetishes or nobody wants to talk about the the weird things that they're into so there are so many layers to why people hide porn addiction but it is out there and we need to understand that and we really are going to need to address it in the very near future all right. Well, um, I want to thank you again for uh, reaching out and for coming on the show. Um, I think it was uh, a really good conversation, um, and uh, I hope that you have a uh, great rest of your rest of your day. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's episode. If you haven't already. Please subscribe to the show on whatever app you are using to listen so you don't miss a single episode. If you like anything you've heard today, links, as always, are in the show notes. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, email us at suggestions at thepodcastingcouch.com and we'll reach out. The Podcasting Couch is executive produced by Sirenicide and Max Cannon and is completely listener-funded. 
To contribute to the show and help us bring you new shows every week, visit www.patreon.com slash thepodcastingcouch or click the support tab on thepodcastingcouch.com and become a producer. As always, this is The Podcasting Couch. I'm Chris Carlson. Be decent.